You've entered Bookstorm with Kristen Civiletto and me, Chris Storm. This is a podcast devoted to best-selling books that matter, books that make a difference. We're diving down deep with beloved authors about their stories. We're exposing hot-button topics and heartfelt themes, the issues that affect each of us in our own lives as siblings, parents, partners, friends, as human beings. We're braving new ideas, fresh thoughts, hard lessons and important truths. Those kinds of things that stay with us long after we turn the last page and close the book. Well, welcome back to Bookstorm. Sit back, grab a coffee or maybe even a whiskey because you have been waiting for this one, friends. We have the incredibly talented Sandra Brown with us today. She is the New York Times bestselling author of over 70 novels. There are 80 million copies of her books in print. They're found in 34 languages. Four films have, versions have been made from these books. She is the master storyteller, the expert at the craft of great suspense and sexy novels. She writes thriller, romance, historical. There's no limit to what Sandra Brown can do and take you in her absolutely mesmerizing writing style and beautiful voice. Her episode on True TV, Murder by the Book, premiered the series. She appeared on investigative discovery series, Hardcover Mysteries. Television movies have been made out of her novels, French Silk, Smokescreen, Ricochet, and White Hot. Sandra holds an honorary doctorate of humane letters from the prestigious Texas Christian University, where she and her husband have instituted a wonderful ELF scholarship that they award annually. Thank you for that, Sandra. Absolutely. She, she has served as president of Mystery Writers of America, she was named the Thriller Master, the top award given by International Thriller Writer Associates. She has also received so many awards and accolades, but let me just name a few. Texas Medal of Arts Award for Literature, the Romance Writers of America Lifetime Achievement. She has gone on two USO tours to Afghan Afghanistan and Cuba. Wow. <laughs> Sandra, you are amazing. Oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you for sharing your talent and your beautiful writing with Kristen and I. We adore all of your books, but thank we're you. here to talk to you today about this wonderful blind tiger. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Sandra, we'd like to give our listeners uh, a very short summary of the book. So if you'll indulge me for a second, I will not give away any spoilers, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, this book, Blind Tiger, is a thrilling novel set against the backdrop of 1920s prohibition. We hear from two perspectives. We hear from Laurel, who is the mother of an infant. She is stuck 
out in a shack with her father-in-law after the uh, very unexpected loss of her husband, who is a World War I vet. We also hear from Thatcher Hutton. He is a discharged soldier who leaps off a boxcar right into the Plummer household. (laughs) He finds himself the first night he is in Foley, Texas, uh, arrested for a crime that he didn't commit. When he sorts some of that out, he joins forces with a deputy sheriff in the town. And meanwhile, Laurel, who's in very dire financial circumstances, uh, has started a business where she, number one, is lifting women out of situations that she found herself in, but also helping her father-in-law expand a business that may not be so legal. These two have crackling energy between them, but they are on opposite sides of the law. And their creativity, their inventiveness, the way they make decisions keeps us guessing the entire novel all the way through. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> we just adored it. We love the entire book. I love a good suspenseful mystery that can be unraveled by the reader if we're savvy enough. And you have delivered that. There were clues and bunny trails and sly trickery that was just enough facts, though, to allow the reader to solve the crime. And I looked into the title, Blind Tiger, the title's actually profound in your story. So for our listeners, Blind Tiger is a phrase that means the practice of disguising illegal alcohol selling bars as harmless establishments. And yet, I think all of we readers could not help but notice that this phrase, blind tiger, seems also to be a trait in several of the characters in your story. We have the heroine, Laurel, who is someone we all long to emulate. Her world falls apart. She's poverty-stricken. She is alone. And yet, there is a secret fire within her that is revealed as she courageously fights for survival. And I was wondering, is she, she is the perfect example of women empowerment. Is this a message you were trying to send? And did this character evolve in ways that even you as a writer might have been surprised? My characters always evolve in ways that surprise me. And, and some of their actions, uh, you know, take me uh, off guard and I'll be going, gosh, that's great. You know, they, they sort of, once I put them into terrible trouble, um, I leave them to their own devices more or less. And, and they then kind of guide, you know, the story and they do things that, because I'm a card carrying coward. So uh, (laughs) anytime that my characters exhibit any kind of courage or do something that I don't know that I would have had to, had to do. It comes strictly from them. It, it, it comes out in the writing. So a lot of the writing is organic. You know, the story kind of takes over and the characters take over and, and guide it. In terms of Laurel, um, I, I didn't know everything that was going to happen to her, but I knew that um, they always have to be opposites. They always have to be forbidden. Because if it's easy, you've got no story. So they always have to be forbidden to each other. So I knew that if I created the character of Thatcher, who was going to be the hero, 
was he going to be a moonshiner or was he going, you know, what was, and so I thought, well, if I make him a lawman, then <laughs> that kind of left my heroin. And um, I actually, it, I think it's the last uh, sentence of um, chapter 18. And her line of dialogue is, what's the recipe? And I thought of that line. And then I went back to the beginning of the book and I thought, how am I going to get that character to that point where she says, what's the recipe? And that was kind of her, she's all in at that point. Because it's interesting that you you talk about her, the character arc that she makes, but I don't, I think it was as much a surprise to Laurel that she was capable of doing this. Um, she didn't know that she was going to be required to, to do all of these things and make all of these uh, daring decisions for that point in time in history. And uh, when she was given the situation, she she sort of she really evolved as a character because she had so few choices. And finally, I think she she got to the point where she says, well, to hell with it. I'm going for it, you know, because at that point in time, she didn't have anything else to lose. So I think uh, it was interesting to watch her because I think her some of the things that she did were as a surprise to her as they were to me. And then hopefully as it were to the reader, I think, I think she was surprised by the fortitude that she showed that she demonstrated when she had to. And that's what we loved about her. And I think that's what readers would like to be her. We, we become her in the beautiful unfolding of this character. You allow us to become one with her. And then we say to ourselves, in a hardship situation, yeah, we would hope we too would find some inner strength. And after being uh, in poverty and destitute and hopeless, right. to come upon a circumstance and say, this is the most unlikely thing that could possibly cross my path. Anyone who knew me would say I could never do it, and yes, I'm going to do it. And she jumps right in, and you just can't help but love her. Oh, we just well, thank love her. you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and root yeah. for her, and cheer for and her. For, yes, absolutely. And forgive her, because <laughs> what she's doing is not exactly legal. <laughs> But you know, that's that idea too of, to me, the blind tiger that we're all wrestling with in life, right? Because, you know, we have a side of ourselves we present to the world, maybe through social media right. or our Instagram, but inside, aren't we always wrestling with an adequacy or these feelings of doubt about ourselves? Right. And so, you know, to me, again, that, that title was just so profound because we saw it playing out in the historical backdrop and we saw it playing out in the characters. And it made me really examine that aspect too. I have to admit that um, I had never come across that that phrase before until I started researching uh, the novel. And when I got into the whole prohibition um, research and everything, it's something I was reading. I came across that phrase, blind tiger. And I thought, what, what is that exactly? And looked it up, came to find out it was another word for, you know, speakeasy. 
And but it really was not of American origin. They really started calling businesses blind tigers in the 1850s in England. And that was the, that is the first recorded uh, time that anybody, you know, had had referred to a speakeasy or an illegal liquor establishment. And so when I, but when I saw it, I thought I love the phrase. I loved the alliteration. I thought it was going to look so good on a book cover. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. um, early on, um, before I'd even fully pitched the idea to my editor, I said, and I've already got a title, which was great because often I get to the end of the book and it's um, untitled Sandra Brown. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> still don't have a title. <laughs> so sometimes they've been after me. You know, the book is going to print. We really need a title on this, and I've taken it right down to the wire. But in this particular instance, I had the title almost right away because I just thought it would be intriguing, and that people—it's not you know a phrase you hear every day—and uh, so I thought it would be intriguing to a reader. What does that mean? Yeah, and it was. It was. And as you start to read the story, you love the title more and more. Oh, yeah. Definitely was. You know, I'd like to kind of go back to that historical context you were just talking about. You know, we all know that Prohibition failed miserably. Um, It ended in in 1933 with the uh, ratification of the 21st Amendment. Mm -hmm. And the unintended consequences have always fascinated me. Mm -hmm. You know, restaurants failed, tax revenues declined. Uh, crime syndicates like the mafia uh, mushroomed, the black market thrived, and a wide, widespread disrespect for the law became acceptable. And right. I, you know, I'm an attorney, and so for me, that was a very <laughs> big thing that I struggled with. And you know, sometimes we refer to prohibition as the noble experiment. And I was wondering if you thought, from your research and your perspective, did that change the direction of our country in many respects? Well, I think it changed it very dramatically and it wasn't just the prohibition prohibition was sort of a um, placebo to the social issues that were taking place and they for instance in the novel uh, Derby Laurel's husband comes back from World War One with post-traumatic stress well nobody had named it then it was called shell shock or battle fatigue And so that was a a very real social issue. But these poor men who were suffering this drank too much. They left their families. They couldn't hold a job. Uh, Spousal abuse, you know, was on the increase. And homelessness because they would become just, you know, drunker. Well, then the prohibition is like, well, it's all alcohol. You know, that's the problem. If we just don't let anybody drink, then those problems will go away. Well, of course, we know that is not the case. I mean, it went a whole lot deeper than that. Um, The women's movement was another thing. Uh, Suffrage had just been made into law the same month that prohibition went into effect. And so women had gotten the right to vote, but during World War One, they had gotten out of the home to go to work in industries and in offices. The typewriter had become a very, you know, big thing at that point in time. They were taught to type. They assumed secretarial positions, 
teaching positions. They were working outside the home really for the first time in American history, and they liked it. They liked it a lot. Well, then when all the men came home and needed to get their jobs back, there went the women. It was like women can't work anymore. The men are back. So that was another social issue. So really, in a way, I don't know if we could attribute all of this, all of the things that came out of prohibition, um, strictly due to the uh, restriction of alcohol. I think that was symptomatic, but it was like putting a bandaid on all of these changes that might have taken place, even had prohibition not been an issue. Um, the crime element, and that comes out in the book, the crime element, uh, of course, um, uh, was because law-abiding citizens suddenly became criminals. You know, yeah. people of um, European extraction who had, who had immigrated to the United States and were accustomed to making their own beer and wine for their own consumption were then criminals. Um, people who had made moonshine for centuries um, in Texas and Appalachia, you know, other parts of the country became criminals. And so, uh, of course, then organized crime, that was the, the first organized crime in the United States is when, you know, territorially people started bootlegging and they wanted a certain territory, so they would fight them. So it was, it was a real upheaval. And that was kind of a, I would call it, as a novelist, I would call it the catalytic event was the passage of, of prohibition. Um, when it suddenly became law and you, you couldn't have a drink, nor could you make your own, you know, apple, hard apple cider, um, the people got their backs up about it because it changed the whole culture. So that was, it was kind of the catalytic event that kind of pushed everything. Um, it enabled a lot of people to uh, pursue <laughs> maybe some, some deep-seated ambitions like, you know, being a gangster <laughs> or, or something <laughs> like that. But I didn't know until I started doing the research, I just typed in um, prohibition in Texas. And I little did I know that about uh, 45 miles from where I live, it's a town called Glen Rose, two words, and it was the it was the moonshine capital of Texas because wow. geographically it was perfect. It had all these limestone uh, underground springs, limestone lines, so the water was pure. The water was already filtered. It's very hilly, so they could put a still under the ledge of rock, and it would hide the smoke. And all of this comes out in the book, but the, the uh, research on it was fascinating. And there was a, a raid where uh, organized by the Texas Rangers, FBI, uh, local law officials that, that raided uh, Summerall County, and uh, and and kind of made an example uh and of course most of the politicians in the in the uh town were rounded up <laughs> with everybody else uh and sent to jail but there was an informer his name was dick watson and he was a world war one veteran and when he got back from the war his family's uh cotton 
uh, fields had been ruined by the boll weevil. So they started growing corn and they couldn't eat it all. They couldn't sell it all for human consumption. So they sold it to the moonshiners. And uh, so he and his brother were very deeply steeped in, in the prohibition industry and in the moonshine industry. But then he turned lawman and he became a secret agent and he was assassinated. Um, he was shot in the back through a, the window of a friend's house and killed before he could testify in the trials of some of these people after the raid. So I kind of based the character Thatcher on, on him. You know, Thatcher doesn't meet that fate, but um, I got the idea of, you know, the secret agent and that everyone, you know, suspects Thatcher is, is he. <laughs> I just am amazed. You had so many interesting things in there, but I kept, I kept thinking about the fact that when we offer solutions to just symptoms rather than getting to the mm -hmm. root of the issue, there's like a cascade of problems that come from that. Right. What a fascinating historical glimpse that also applies to us today. Well, it, respects, it, was, right? it was really, um, when I sat down, I, I was locked in uh, during the first few months of, of COVID, I was caught away from home um, and I had stayed two months <laughs> by myself and I had just finished Thick as Thieves. And uh, so I started thinking, well, I, I'm, I'm stuck. I've got to, uh, I'll just start thinking up another book. And I thought, gosh, what is there to write about though? I mean, everything was so grim. It was all the political stuff. It was all the racial unrest. It was just, and, and then COVID, you know, the overriding thing. So I thought, what am I going to write about? You know, where people aren't wearing masks. And, and I thought, what was happening a hundred years ago? What if I wrote a historical? So I just typed in America 1920 instead of 2020. And guess what? They had a global pandemic. Spanish yes. <laughs> they had the <laughs> Me Too movement, except where it was women's suffrage. Um, they had soldiers coming home from a very unpopular war with post-traumatic stress, just like, you know, Afghanistan was for us. And um, and then on top of everything else, you couldn't get a drink because prohibition went into effect. So that nothing's really changed. We're dealing with the same problems because um, human beings don't change. And so I pitched the idea to my editor and I said, what if I just had a change of pace? Because if I'm tired of everything that's going on in the country right now, I, I think readers will be, so it might be a refreshing change just to do. But I said, the, the caveat is, or the irony is that the problems that we're experiencing were the same problems they were having a hundred years ago. So it just went to prove we really don't learn very much as we go along. Maybe we do, but human nature has been eternal, you know, and um, so it's hard to change human nature. Yes, Everyone identifies also... with the same passions and fears and, you know, so it's, uh, we don't change as people very much. 
but I think that's also what we loved about your book so much, that it is a historical, but as we read it, we realize we can relate to that, yeah. that even though that happened 100 years ago, those people were so very much like us, going through <laughs> the same things. And I also have to say, I love the character Thatcher, and I can't say too much because I don't want to give any spoilers, but he's just such a great guy, and you're rooting for him. And when you left the little clues about who is the informant, what there's no more fun than for the reader to start start to suspect everyone <laughs> and put their little clues together on the side and I love a story I love a story that gives you enough clues to let you be part of the mystery solving and that's what this did for our readers it's just a wonderful story oh thank um, you I, I uh, want to try to build in those you know because you have to be fair to your reader. Uh, I think we've all read books where we got to, and it was like, well, where did that come from? You know, that, and, and uh, so I, I try to be fair. And I, and I heard one time somebody smarter than, than I said, um, you lay the cards on the table while you've got them looking at the chandelier. And I thought that was a great example. You, you put the clues out there, but you've got them looking at something else when you do. Because the reader is smart and yeah. you are giving us the respect for being smart enough to give us the clues and see if we can figure it out. And maybe we can and maybe we can't, but that's the fun of it. Yeah. And these real life characters. So I want to talk about Laurel a little bit more. I can't go into as much detail as I would like because of the spoilers, but something that I love that you wove into this character, Laurel in the end harbored guilt over the death of a loved one. Mm -hmm. Now, she, this loved one had mistreated her. They disagreed. They fought. But in the very end, she was willing to introspectfully acknowledge her part in the relationship or maybe even her responsibility. Um, she admitted that she may have had a little bit of fault in it because she was trying to make this person someone she wanted him to be, not necessarily someone he was meant to be. And I just, this was like an eye opener for me. I thought, wow. I thought, do we do this today in our lives? Do we think we want the best, maybe for a spouse or a friend or a child, but we are, we displace our own goals upon them. And I wondered if, um, if this was something that you wanted the reader to understand, or did it occur to you as well throughout the writing? Uh, well, I have to be honest on this. Um, that was a note that I got from one of my first readers. And, um, and it was a, a young man. And uh, he said, you know, uh, I think it doesn't have to be a lot. But he said, I think that there has to be some personal accountability um, from, from Laurel to where she realizes, you know, maybe I didn't, you know, I was thinking, of me and and like where's the old derby you know i i want him where's the one i you know i fell in love with and so she was and she said i didn't realize that possibly and probably um 
I was pushing him in a way that he absolutely could not help, you know, just couldn't help himself. And, um, and so I, I thought that was a really excellent note and observation. And so I did write that, that scene at the end of the book where she owns up to her culpability, you know, in that. And I think because she had come from, um, you know, her, it's referred to as her father was just very hard and harsh. And, um, and I think that maybe she saw in herself, oh no, was that, was that the way I was becoming? you know, unforgiving, unaccepting. And um, so it all kind of came full circle. And I really, I appreciated that note because I did think it was much better book for it. But I also think the character of Laurel, it in that way kind of taught us all a lesson is that some, some things we, you know, we want it badly for, but there's only so much we can do, you know, really. And we have to, acknowledge it, but also kind of let it go. And that that's one thing that Irv, her father-in-law, who I, I just adored, Irv, but, um, and I loved their friendship. I loved their yes. relationship. Um, but he, he was like, you know, it, you did, you did fine by, it. he kind of lets her off the hook, but it, it wasn't important that anybody else thought it. It was important that she thought it. Mm -hmm. And as a reader, I don't believe she was responsible whatsoever, but it made us love her all the more when she would admit that she wasn't perfect or maybe yeah. even consider this is an attribute in, I think, in any character to take a really good long look at ourselves. And I think it made her all the richer and all, all the more lovable because of it. Well, it I think beautiful. one one problem with our society, and it kind of goes back to, Kristen, what you were saying about the, the social issues and things being blamed and not getting to the heart of it. And I think at the heart of so many of our issues today is the lack of personal accountability. Um, I mean, just, you know, people refusing um, to to take responsibility for their actions, for things they say, for things they do. And it, it, you can't rely on, you know, a school board or a government or a religious organization or anybody to take responsibility for things when those <laughs> when those are those entities are made up of human beings and if a human being doesn't take responsibility for them you know their own actions then you know the whole society falls apart it's easy to blame somebody else or it well it was that thing or it was that issue or it was this but really it all comes down to the decisions that an individual makes and, yeah, and how they how they uh, abide by, you know, their decisions and take responsibility for the bad ones. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of wisdom right there. Thank you for that. Yes, yes. it is. Um, you alluded to the fact that women uh, back in this time period had fewer options than we have now. And I want to kind of go back to that just a little bit. Uh, in your book, and of course, historically, we know that a lot of women uh, felt forced to uh, be in, involved in prostitution. 
and in, or in other jobs that paid very little money and were very demeaning. Uh, we have more options now, of course. We even have social uh, you know, safety nets in terms of food programs and other things along those lines. And I wanted to see what you thought were some of the strengths that Laurel had because she really changed the narrative a bit. I mean, she may not have been on the on the best side of the law for a time, but she certainly possessed character traits that propelled her in a certain direction. She was incredible in how she went about that. And I was wondering if you could just comment on some of those character traits that you thought enabled her to do that. And also, you know, do you think she was also trying to avoid a marriage to avoid getting back into that trap where she couldn't be that person she felt she was meant to be? I like to think that um, if if further down the road that, you know, she would have changed her mind about that because <laughs> because she was with a different man. She was not with her hard father, you know, uh, unforgiving, um, 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 tyrannical father. She wasn't with her husband. She was with Thatcher. And, Thatcher, and so I like to think that Possibly she changed her mind about that, but it really didn't matter because I think that, you know, I think they would have been together no matter what, you know, no matter if, if she had clung to that. Um, in terms of her assuming these responsibilities and doing the things that, that she did and making the decisions that she made along the way, as I said earlier, I think she surprised herself. I don't think that she set out to, um, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to, but, but as the opportunities presented themselves to her, she adapted very well and very quickly. And there are two scenes that, that come to it. Well, as I said, the first one was where she said, what's the recipe? Because it was like, here's an opportunity. I've got to put food on the table, you know, and so I can't depend on, you know, my father-in-law and obviously has a good thing going. So that was one major decision, but it was, I don't think she didn't go out there that night in the middle of nowhere, follow, you know, following him out there to make a decision like that. But when she got to the, you know, that cusp of it, it was like, I'm going for it. The next one that comes to mind is the scene in the cafe when she brings in the pies and she runs into Thatcher and Chester there, you know, and she has to be disingenuous. She has to lie. She has to pretend, you know, to be now something that she's not. And she did it spontaneously. She had no preparation for it, but she reacted to it. Um, there were so many instances where, uh, and, and then the next one was when Chester and, um, oh gosh, what's his name? The bad guy. <laughs> Can you think? The, um, what was it? The, the bootlegger. Uh, when he, they come to her house and they think they're going to catch her with, and, and she, you know, kind of, gets out of that and we don't know that she's going to get out of that but she had outsmarted them and so i think that as the book you know all of these scenes were statements um and this is all subconscious i don't sit up and think up all this stuff it just kind of comes out in the writing and then i'll say <laughs> oh that was so brilliant <laughs> but um 
when uh, I, I think that she didn't set out to see, she didn't sit back when all of these, you know, travails had had landed on her and think, I'm going to evolve into this smart businesswoman, into this strong woman, into this woman who's going to take on my enemies and who's going to defeat them. You know, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. You know, she didn't make a declaration like that. It just kind of, when the when the situation presented itself, she was she took it on. She she did it, and um, I think we can um, I think we can admire her for all of those. You know, and then there were times I'd get real impatient with her. I would just be like. Here is this amazing man. <laughs> What's the matter with you? You know, but she kept pushing away, pushing away, pushing away, which of course made made me and the reader all the more eager for you know. And I love the way that he didn't take any of her guff either. Yep. You know. <laughs> He kind of liked it. <laughs> I love that about all of your writing, that uh, the sexual tension that lingers and goes on and on. And throughout this story, thinking, is he going to kiss her? No, not yet. You know, and you just want that. You want them to be together so badly. And that that's the other beauty of this story, this romance that's building between two people that the reader loves and you know they're good for each other and you just want them to get together. And there were so many aspects of this book that, really touched our hearts and we just adored it just adored it i like the way uh thatcher just kind of uh, allowed just let her spin you know what he he just let her spin and i think he you know he kept saying i have a knack of reading people and i think he knew a lot but he had to let her realize you know and also written within the context of the time period Mm -hmm. you know uh i wanted it to be modern novel in um in a lot of ways but uh still stay true to the the time period and um and how would people have looked upon her not with the respect they did if you know she hadn't abided by the mores and morals of the time and him too i mean um so it uh, it was it was a fine line. I wanted it to be contemporary enough to where, um, you know, contemporary readers would be very much into the love story and the sexuality and the romance, but at the same time keep it true to the time period, the vernacular, you know, of the time period, not language like we use now. Um, but you kind of knew what they were, you know. I knew what they were saying and doing. What's happening. And that, that's the fun of this historical, too, is that when you write a historical, with having done the research that you did, we're learning something. We, oh. It's not just we're being entertained. We learned a little something about history that we could take with us. And it was just a treasure. We adored it. And can you give us any idea? What are you working on now? What's on your radar? Any yeah, clues? I, I, was, uh, I was just about to finish up the next book. Um, and I, I'm putting the finishing touches on it, so it may go in uh, by next week. But um, it's called Overkill, and um, it's a, a suspense novel, it's contemporary suspense. Um, I love my my little 
trip into the historical and I, I never say never, I'd love to write another one. Um, but I had this story in mind and, and it was, um, uh, it, it's, it's, I don't want to talk about it too much I'll, because we're just on the cusp of, re of revealing the cover. We just came out, reveal the title. I say us, my publisher and I, um, uh, just revealed the the title last week and the cover it will be next week and and it's provoc it's a very provocative uh subject i think and it um it it opens up a lot of uh, of questions um uh, ethical uh moral it's it's a uh, the hero is kind of a tom brady he um is a uh former star MVP Super Bowl quarterback and in the spotlight all the time, every aspect of his life and something, the catalytic event, something happens that um, just, you know, how would you deal with this in a public arena? Because it's a very sensitive matter. And so I thought that would be kind of an interesting thing. So, I, I, and I've loved him, um, working with him. And then the, the young woman that he meets is a state prosecutor um, for, and, and she's, you know, she's um, smart, savvy. <laughs> so I, I've liked it. It's, it's been fun. I'm just about to turn it in, so. Well, we can't wait for that one, Beth. Thank you for giving us a few little tidbits about that, but I know our listeners are going to be super excited about that. So thank you so much. We loved having you. I want to tell our listeners, you're going to want to connect with Sandra Brown, and you can find her at her website, sandrabrown.net. She's also on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and you can even sign up for her newsletter to get direct communication. Yep. Sandra, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. been delightful, both of you. It, Appreciate it has, your having me. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. We are longtime fans of all of your novels. We can't wait to see what's coming out next. <laughs> thank Have you. Have a great day. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Always such a pleasure finally meeting Sandra Brown there and the discussion in this book and the book coming out next. Uh, I just thought the whole thing was fantastic and I was so excited to meet her. And uh, what's your takeaway? What's your discussion topic that seemed to hit you the hardest, Kristen? Oh my goodness. There were so many things there that we could delve into both historically and psychologically. Um, there were a couple things. First of all, I, I loved one of the questions that came up about expectations that we place on others. And I, I thought we could kind of explore that a little bit because, you know, I once heard somebody talk about unmet expectations. That's disappointment. And look at how we project that disappointment onto people we love, you know, whether it's our children or a significant other. And that really had me thinking about how is that fair? You know, are there legitimate expectations? You know, I expect you to have a job and to support yourself. And really, the fact that we are always managing different levels of both expectations and disappointment. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was such uh, such an eye-opener for me, too, because we do, we. so when dealing with, say, maybe a spouse or children, 
or even a relative or a friend, and we want to give advice and we want to help make them the best people they can be, but are we making them the best people we think they should be, not who they are created or meant to be? So there's a shortage today of um, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, and it seems like in years past, uh, the, uh, the normal voice was in every child's ear, you have to go to college, you have to get a four-year degree. Now a four-year degree isn't enough. Now you have to get a master's. And I think we've come a little full circle to say, hey, maybe that's not your thing. Maybe you'd be an excellent electrician and, and what an honorable profession. And if that's where your talent and your interest lies, be who you are meant to be, who you're created to be. In this story, it took a terrible turn when someone tried to make a loved one something that they weren't wired for. And maybe uh, this is something we could take a look at in today's society. Um, just respect and honor people for a different pathway that they may have chosen through life that's different from yours. Because you know, quite frankly, if we all pick the same pathway, it's, there's first of all, there's not enough room, and it'd be a pretty dull world if we all did the same thing. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, the other thing that struck me was talking about, first of all, the options available for women. And that came through loud and clear in the story. We had women who felt that they had no choice but to sell their bodies, they entered the sex trade. And, and I think about some of the parallels with today's society, because this wasn't that long ago, first of all. But second of all, yes, women do have options today, but there are a lot of women who I think are acting like they don't have options. And it scares me a little when I see things like, you know, um, OnlyFans, you know, a platform where women uh, or men could potentially um, sell images of themselves or acts that they are, have subscribers and people paying for. And I just wonder how many people are engaged, for example, in sex industries who feel that they don't have an option. You know, I, I just always think about that. It seems to be a little bit of an epidemic. I agree with you. And I think it's from the rise of social media and also uh, having the world available at your fingertips. Um, yeah. As Sandra had said, she researched the book simply by plugging in some words, which, which links you to libraries and historical uh, archives and museums. And you can get a wealth of information by typing something in. But with every good thing, people do seem to find the bad use for it or the evil use. And I, I do uh, see that this is a little bit of an epidemic with our youth today, that they have these things at their fingertips that probably should not be available. And because of their lack of maturity or their need for uh, cash, you know, maybe in uh, low income areas, they find a quick fix to make money, or maybe even gain what they perceive to be self-esteem, although it isn't. Yeah. And the danger also is these videos and photos are in cyber world forever. And even if they leave this and do something else, they could be haunted by this years later. And yeah, that's a sad turn of events. You're, you're right, that our world has taken, very much so. So what is, uh, what is on your radar? Do you have any final takeaways with this book, or what, what are you thinking of? Yeah, one of the things that we talked about really is sticking with me, and that is this idea of symptoms of a problem and the solutions that we offer to address the problem. 
You know, when we only are addressing symptoms, we never get to the root of something. And in this case, we saw these underlying social ills, and there were many of them here, obviously, from domestic abuse to uh, abusing alcohol, but also the fact that we had these veterans returning from a war who, I know they called it shell-shocked, but they were dealing with very real post-traumatic stress syndrome. We've talked about that a couple times on the show, and I'll tell you something, these are issues that we need to understand better. Because 100 years later, we still don't have our arms around some of these underlying issues. And they have an impact on society. And they won't lead to lasting solutions until we get to the root of them Mm -hmm. and understand them better. Mm -hmm. That's another excellent point. I'm going to take that as my takeaway, too. Because uh, here's what my hope is. We have evolved with many more also, because we're on the internet, um, resources. And so we have therapy, we have counselors. Um, even if you don't want to go into an office, you can go on a Zoom with someone. And I think and I hope that our society has progressed to a point where we do take a look at drug abuse, alcoholism, crime, and understand that that is the uh, there's a cause that leads to that effect, like you just said, Kristen, so wisely. And let's take a look at the underlying cause. And that's our hope for the future. Just love this book, Blind Tiger. Hugely recommend it. Just adore Sandra Brown. Yes. And uh, little going to close our podcast today with our usual shout out to our incredibly talented sound engineer, the Mr. Mark Carey. We're leaving you with a few storm predictions to pique your interest. Or maybe you'd like to read ahead. Our spring lineup, Lisa Scottaline, What Happened to the Bennetts. We have Fiona Davis and the beautiful novel Magnolia Palace. We have Laura Morelli and her intriguing story, The Stolen Lady. We have Heather Morris and the beautiful Three Sisters, Nina de Gramont and The Christie Affair. Until next time, one of the best ways to brave the storm is to dive down deep into life-changing fiction. Thank you.